Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. I want to I call up our guest speaker, uh, Pastor Jason Pankow. He's becoming a real good friend. We met in, our, in the doctoral program at Gordon-Conwell, and uh, I just really enjoy my friendship with this brother. He's a lot of fun. He's bringing the Word of God to us today, and he's also going to be leading us next year for the first six months of the year in the Omega course. And so, would you just bow with me for a second as we pray for him, all right? <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for Pastor Jason and his servant heart and the generous kingdom spirit you put into him and how he just loves to give away the best of what you've poured into him to others to watch your kingdom grow and to see your glory uh, just increase on the earth. And Father, as he brings the word, we know that he has poured his heart into this and you have prepared him. We ask now that you would take all of that and anoint it so that as he preaches, we would hear the very voice of God. And I pray, Lord, that as this message goes out, you would ready our hearts as well to receive this good word that's coming so that we would not be left the same people that we walked in. But your word would change us and inspire us and convict us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you, brother. Well, how is everybody this morning? Great. We're alive. That's what I heard over there. We might want to shoot a little bit higher than we're alive, but... That's great. They gave me a clicker and everything. Hold on, let me get my clicker out. Look at that, huh? Pretty high tech. Um, I was able to be here actually with you, uh, just sitting uh, amongst you last week as uh, Pastor Dave talked about the, the doom and gloom and the destruction and being carried off into captivity, which was the fun sermon, I thought. And so I was really upset that I wouldn't be able to preach that one. But um, I do actually get the fun sermon. Uh, which is to talk about that's not the end of the story, which is good, right? And what I want you to do, just to frame this whole thing up, as we're going to look at the book of Nehemiah together, just the first three chapters, and lift out some principles from that, I want to use this as a metaphor for restoring the church today, here, now, to what it should be, a disciple-making community. It's a very interesting um, comparison, actually, because when you look at the state of the church in the world, we used to be, if you understand the history of America, the seedbed for the spread of Christianity all over the world. Started in New England, then came out to the Midwest and all this. And, you know, 100 years ago or so, church was just alive and vibrant, 150 years ago even. And when the pioneers... You know, people that were crazy enough to go plant churches. You know, that's you. Did you know that, right? When that was more of the norm, you know, because all these big edifices that have been here for 50 years and all that weren't there, somebody had to go build all that. It drew out of the people that did that a different kind of devotion, a different kind of focus, a different kind of living into their faith than usually comes from those who inherit all that hard work. Usually it's a big shift because you get entitled. Does that make sense to you? 
If we were to go and study the, what's going on in church history and you look at Europe where there was powerhouse and then it came to America, powerhouse, and now it's dwindling, by the way. We are the third largest missionary receiving country in the world. People are sending missionaries to pagan America because it's just not working here. You know, people who have very little resources but have a lot of God come here and want to share that with us who are attending church services but don't seem to be living our faith. There doesn't seem to be any potency to what's happening. So I would like to do is get just a show of hands, and I know you're a more reserved crowd, so I'm going to actually make you do this. Uh, a show of hands of how many of you, just on the face value, right what I just said, agree with me? Yeah? That in general, just to use the illustration here, the walls are broken down. The temple is destroyed. Okay? Just to go back to the illustration of where we are in church history here. Okay? Of looking in Scripture. So just to kind of bridge the gap of where we were, everything's destroyed, doom and gloom, there's about 70 years of what some theologians call Sabbath rest. Okay? And so imagine yourself. 70 years is a whole generation or two, depends on what was happening back then, where the bulk of the Jewish people, the bulk of the Israelites, are now carried off into Babylon. Not just a fun Babylon, right? No, okay. Maybe I'm the only one that liked that. Okay. And then Babylon gets conquered by Persia. That's another fun one, right? And then God speaks to the king of Persia, and the people get favor. Okay? So let me see if my slide thing works here. Okay. So about 538 B.C., that's before Christ, right? A.D. is not after his death, in case if you were raised like me. Anyway, Cyrus II ruled Persia, and he defeated the Babylonian Empire. And he, inspired by God, gave favor to an Israelite, Zerubbabel, which is just fun to say really fast, and authorized him to lead a group of people back. Okay, this is, you find all this, by the way, in your, in your Bible, in the book of Ezra, okay, which is right before Nehemiah, okay, and their contemporaries. So he goes back to build the temple first. Okay? So he gives them a commission to do that. And instead of building the temple, all he's able to do is really kind of erect the altar and start doing the sacrificial system again. So then, uh, more is needed, but we hold off till till that. So the prophets that were active during this time, just in case you care, are Haggai and Zechariah. And they're speaking into this world. They're speaking into the Jewish people, trying to wake them up. Okay? Because again, 70 years, most of the people that were you know, a part of making us you know, not be faithful and all that, they're dead now. Now the kids of those people are the ones you know, in captivity in a very nice area, you know, probably not uh, too bad. But it's not home, right? And then certain people, based on their character and their excellence of life, were actually elevated into positions of prominence, like Nehemiah. Nehemiah became cupbearer to the king, which is probably the second most trusted person in the kingdom. Because okay? most often, if you wanted to take somebody out, you'd poison them back then. Okay? So it was a pretty important job. Does that make sense? But he rose up 
it kind of makes me think of the Scripture that says, show me somebody gifted in his work and they will perform before kings. Right? People of power like excellence around them. And they especially like character excellence because they can trust them. Okay? Nehemiah was a man of character. He was worthy. And so, that's what happened. Then Darius came in and ruled Persia, which not a whole lot happened there. And then Xerxes number one came in, and this is where Esther, you guys know the story of Esther, right? This is how that played out. It almost got really bad, and then boom, for such a time as this, Esther. Okay? Then, I'm going to try and say this one good, Artaxerxes, right? Number one, ruled Persia, and uh, he authorized Ezra to lead a group, ba- group back to really build the temple around the altar, but the temple now, okay? So you can kind of see it coming in waves. First, an altar and a little bit of momentum. Then, a lot of time. Then, the temple itself. But just having a temple there and you know, authorizing the worship of their God again you know, in a more dramatic way doesn't bring prominence. It's still an undefendable situation. Do you see what I'm saying? So the walls still being broken down, that's a big deal. All right? And so, Hector Terxis, uh, when he was ruling Persia, uh, again, contemporary with Nehemiah here, Nehemiah does some amazing things that gets his attention. So let's just dig into some scripture here. I'm just going to do again a little bit of the first three chapters. We're going to jump in, jump out, and lift up some principles. What I want you to be thinking about, not only what happened there, that's great, What should you be doing as a personal follower of Jesus now based on what you learn here? Because I'm telling you the circumstances really aren't that different. Okay? The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. And I just have fun with that, so I'm not being disrespectful. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile. So that right there just gives you this picture of what people in Persia were thinking. Uh, The remnant. Those who survived the exile. You know, the rabble, if you will. Those are just holding on by the skin of their teeth back there. He's living in a palace. You understand the dramatic difference, right? He's cupbearer to the king. And And he also asked him about Jerusalem. What's going on back there? They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. You know, by the way, that happened like 200 years ago. He would have known all this. You get that? When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days, and I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. All right, we'll just stop there for a minute. What's going on inside Nehemiah? He's an Israeli. He's a, he's a Jew. He's, but he's in a prominent position. Things are going okay for him. He, he doesn't need to feel pressed to do anything. But apparently, his brother came to him, and it must have been more than just what he said. It must have been the way he looked. It must have been the urgency with which he said it. Something broke through to Nehemiah that just makes him cry. When has something ever happened to you in your life? Somebody brought you a piece of news and your response to that news was weeping instantaneously. 
Has that ever happened to you? You know, it's amazing how many people don't have that experience these days because we've trained all that right out of us, right? We're almost like we can't be surprised type people. Does that make sense to you? We don't feel life deeply anymore. We don't care. We're not passionate enough anymore. We're just kind of numb. How many of you got the numb thing going? Get them up, guys. Yeah, I figured as much, right? If you're like me. So this, this dramatic story of what, what it's like for the, those left behind, those poor folks who weren't, you know, blessed to be, you know, raised up and get exalted and have this wonderful position of power and influence. Well, rather than have that kind of a character which said, oh, yeah, that's a bad story, but okay, I'm sorry for them. This wrecks him. How many of you have ever, I mean really ever, for some days, we don't even know how long that is, you mourned and fasted over something happening in the world, happening in your life, happening in your church, because it wrecked you that much. It bothered you that much. You've got to do something about this, God. And I will do what you command us to do in Scripture. I will fast and I will pray. I will get down on my knees and on my face before you and I will wait until you speak and until you move. And that's what he did. And I believe that it's during that time of him seeking God in a desperate way that God started to talk to him as perhaps how God might want to start talking to some of us here today about his priorities. I think God started to talk to him about, do you really care about the things that I care about? About my kingdom and my name being glorified. You've been a dutiful, faithful servant to another king. But I am the king of kings. I am the Lord of lords. And my name is being disgraced. Does that bother you? And it wrecked him. And I think it's only in times where you let yourself be wrecked by God that He can readjust your gyroscope inside your world and reprioritize your life. Many people these days, because of the economy and other things, are having a reprioritization of their life happen. Would you agree? How many of you are in that place? You're not a very... I know. Get them up. You know, you got to do it. I'm giving you permission. Thanks. Okay, there's like three of us. We'll have coffee later. Right? Those of you who are listening, like, you know, give me ears to hear, give me eyes to see what you're doing, Lord. God is up to something. I don't know what it is. All I know is that He'll tell those who are truly, fully devoted to Him when the time comes, those who are trained up and ready to go, He will command us into action. Does that make sense to you? So, in some ways, you're in a season of preparation. For some of us, we're in a season of action. I remember when I was pastoring back in Greenwich, Connecticut, just outside New York City, and, uh, and God wrecked me. And uh, I've been doing this uh, Omega course that we're going to be doing here in January, and, and God was just blessing it. People were coming from other churches, and it was just this amazing blessing. And I was asked to go and speak at a big conference down in Atlanta of all the big church pastors like Willow Creek and all these other big church pastors, the people that run the stewardship, financial stewardship ministries within these big churches. 
I was asked to come and speak on life stewardship and the whole concept of it. And after I was done speaking and I was flying back and God just gave tremendous uh, favor, I just felt the weight of the picture of what the church really looks like as it pertains to discipleship. And I'm telling you, it wrecked me. It, it just wounded me in a way that won't heal till I die by God's grace. It wrecked me in a way that said, it's not just about this little pocket. It's about spreading my real truth, the real training my, my people need to live this faith around. And I'm telling you, from there, I just pressed into prayer and fasting like I'd never done before. And then things just started happening. People would come to me and have prophetic words. And I'd have to go, where'd that come from? I know where that came from. And I could either press into those by faith in a desperate, surrendered way and let God be God through me, or I could hold back and go, but that's not safe. That means, you know, I stopped working for the church and we've got to go raise money like missionaries again. And, ah, oh, i got four kids, you know. Uh. I could have let all the comfort stuff slow it down. But then God wouldn't have been glorified. Does that make sense to you, where you live? God wants to wreck us all so that we'll be do, willing to do radical things for His kingdom. Because that's the only thing that builds the kingdom in this place. With all the distractions that surround us in America. I mean, the seven deadly sins are on full display all the time. Am I right? And so how do you navigate your way through all that and live and be fully devoted and be all that you can be and realize life potential as this fully devoted follower of Christ? It's very difficult here. So you need a community of people that say the old normal of just a lot of people going to church services is not going to work for us. That's over. We're going to live this. Hold me accountable. Help train me in the faith. We're going to help train one another. That's the way it's going to have to work. It's actually exactly what Nehemiah did. It's what happened here. So the first principle here is priorities. You have to be willing to let God reorder the priorities of your life so that you will properly invest in growth and time with Him so He can move out through you. Nehemiah decided to make God's priorities his priorities and to do whatever it took to obediently serve his kingdom, even if it meant death. And that opportunity would come very quickly for him, the possibility of death. Okay? Secondly, he prayed into what was promised. He knew the promises of God. He knew what God had said in the past, that I am this wonderful God. I've got this amazing plan for you. If you follow me, I will bless you. If you will just devote yourself to me, I will use your life. I will show you the abundant life. But I'm the one in charge here. I'm the one with the power here. You are not. You have to surrender to me in a way that properly aligns you under my lordship. And that's what he does. Let's look in the scripture here. Oh, well, here's four ways that he did. He correctly recognized who God is and who he wasn't. Verse 5, Then I said, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant of love with those who love Him and obey His commands. So he starts off his prayer recognizing who God is. Remember that He's a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. 
The word covenant means to define relational expectations. So God defined the expectations. I will be your God, you will be my people, and we will show you life and life to the full, right? If you just stay true to the covenant, and that's who you are, you are that God, but we have not been the people. So he could also correctly recognize himself and the Israelites to be the problem. And he asked for forgiveness. Look at this. Let your ear, O Lord, be attentive and your eyes open to hear. Like, I'm not just mouthing words here, God. Dial in. Touch. I'm, I'm coming from the heart here. To the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night. I'm wrecked. I'm praying this for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. When's the last time you did that? And you just got clean. I like to say that the, the most holy moment of your life is right after confession. You're just clean. You, 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 say, you take that inventory and you say, search me and know me. And He brings it all to light and it wrecks you. And you, you mourn, you fast, you tear your clothes, whatever it takes. And then you feel the release of His forgiveness. How many of you have felt that in your life as you've gone through probably several seasons of that? Because you know, as Christians, we have to become like professional apologizers, professional confession people, right? Am I the only sinaholic in here? No, I thought I was... Yeah, I had friends. Okay. He goes on, he says, We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. We have not. We agree. So the third thing he did here, he correctly recognized God's promises and the people's need to repent and turn back to Him. Look what he says next. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Well, you just did that. But if you return to Me and obey My commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for My name. It already been prophesied what's going on. And he's saying, hey, that sounds like us. We've been scattered, and if we return, you'll be faithful. And you can't lie. You're God. You're immutable. You can't change. You said it. It's going to happen if we do our part. So he's the constant. We are truly the variable in this equation. Okay? Does this make sense to you? Verse 10. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and by your mighty hand. So finally, he correctly recognized that God wanted to start with him. And you, you've got to do this personally, you and God. You've got to let God wreck you, and you've got to admit, you in your closet, on your knees, whatever it takes, maybe here right now, you start with me, God. Not you start with our church. You start with me. I will follow you. And then we will follow you. And that's what he did. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, me, your servant. And to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Anybody who's that, we're going to lock arms and we're going to do this together. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. You know, the king. Because he'd already been prompted by the power of the Holy Spirit that he's going to have to go say something to the king. Because he and he alone had that opportunity. Just like as that's why I showed you the whole Esther story, Esther had the ability to do not that long before. 
So he had a model in his mind. Hey, Esther, and they, yeah, such a time as this, I remember that whole story. Maybe a cupbearer to the king boy needs to step into the, up to the plate, right? Okay. Because he was cupbearer to the king. Alright? So the third principle is that we need to seek out God's plan. Great leaders seek out God's plan. Once we've humbled ourselves before God and repented, we need to objectively evaluate our situation and ask God to reveal His plan into our lives. So obviously God had revealed that. While He was fasting and praying, while He was seeking, while He was confessing, He was getting, if you will, a download from God. Here's the prompting. Here's the map of how you could bless my kingdom best. I want you to go talk to the king. I want you to go plead for my people. Now, he knew that doing this would put his life in jeopardy. You're not allowed to be sad in the king's presence. It's, he would kill you for it. And he had killed people for it in the past. So he knew this was a risky venture. But he's trying to be obedient, trusting that wherever God guides, God provides. So God would provide the favor with the king. He's just guessing and hoping. So he does it. He moves in. Nehemiah understood the unique position that he had already had as the cupbearer of the king, and he dared to use this influence in a way to serve God. And so he confronted the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of the king, Artaxerxes, I just like that, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. And look at this. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad and what, uh, when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Wow, God gave him insight to see something deep was happening inside of him. And he was very much afraid. Because he'd seen those words come out of the king's mouth before. And he didn't like the way they ended. Okay? But I said to the king, boldly, filled with the Spirit, with probably with a loving countenance on his face, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it that you want? That's miracle number one. Right? That's favor. Right there. What do you want? What do you want? Because I'll give it to you. I'm for you. This is working. You know, it's either death or what do you want? What do you want? Okay? So, when he had learned that he had found favor in the king's eyes, he prayed again. Verse 4. Uh, and this is when God clarified Nehemiah's mission. Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? Like, it's a done deal now. I'm going to do it. But when do I get you back? You're a valued asset to me. When, when do I get you back? Uh, uh, so it pleased the king to, set, uh, to send me, so I set a time. You know, and we're not told what the time was. But, hey, give me a certain amount of time, and I'll be back. He said, okay. For you, I'll do it. So he had an idea of what it would take to complete the task. God had already filled his mind with that. For example, he asked for safe passage and for materials and you know, what he would need to complete the building. Now another thing that uh, just, I don't know if he asked for it or it just happens, is he gets soldiers to come along with him, which is kind of important. 
He gets the papers he needs to go through all the different territories and stuff to get there safely. But he also has soldiers. Now this is interesting because previous to this, Ezra, when he was sent to go and build the temple, there was this contemplation, should I ask for soldiers? And Ezra being you know, the more spiritual, uh, you know, strong guy, basically says, God will protect us. Let's not push our luck here and ask for that. God will make it happen. And he did. Protected him through all the danger. Okay? But Nehemiah's a little, you know, just getting started in this whole recommitment to God thing. So he brings soldiers with him. You know, that, that didn't hurt. He also knew when to trust God in his planning and trusted God to supply the labor force when he arrived in Jerusalem. He didn't know how they'd do this. He just said, give me the stuff, I'm going to show up. God will provide the people. I don't know. I don't even know if they're going to agree to the idea. I'm just going with what I need because God told me to. So I'm just doing what he told me to do. So then, uh, verse 7, I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest. He'll give me the timber and the beams and the gates of the citadel, uh, for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. It's kind of nice, gets a residence out of the deal. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers, here it is, and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Amorite, uh, Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed. Uh-oh, the status quo was changing. We kind of liked the old status quo when they were very powerless. Now this guy's showing up with, with you know, soldiers and cavalry and what's going on? Uh, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. They knew their history. They knew that the Israelites at one point in time were the world power, right? And they didn't treat their relatives very nicely, okay? So the fourth principle is when we're hearing from God, after we, you know, pray, after we seek His plan, when we're starting to hear, we need to proceed with the big picture in mind. This is where I find that a lot of people, when they're trying to really engage their discipleship with God, fall down. They don't see the whole picture. This is what we're going to help you see as you go through the Omega course together. We're going to help you see the big picture of faith so that you can make strategic, wise decisions as to how to build uh, your faith. Verse 11, I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. So basically, he comes commissioned by God, but before he goes and talks to anybody, he checks out the big picture. He goes around and figures out what's really going on there. By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well. Look how detailed he is. And the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there wasn't enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up by the... Isn't this cool, all the detail, right? No, you really don't care. So anyway, so I went up by the valley at night examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing because I, as yet I had not said anything to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any others who, could, who would be doing the work. That's kind of a nice little closure there. You know, everybody who's going to have to do all this. I haven't showed because I wanted to make sure I knew exactly what had to be done before I shared the vision of what God was calling us. And they just met him. They don't know the us yet. Uh, to do. 
So that the way that he's going to go about helping them become, you know, from the me to the we, is personal commitment. Great leaders motivate people toward a God-honoring vision by using themselves as examples of commitment. So he starts to tell the story. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're all in? Jerusalem lies in ruin. They're like, dude, we've been living here. Thanks for pointing out the problem. You're a pretty wise guy. You know. And its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. And I think that's the point that gets them. You know, I've come here. I didn't have to come here. God's told me to come. I've brought the stuff we're going to need. I got soldiers. I got, I've come. But here's why. Your plight has touched me. And I'm here for you. It's for us. Let's do this for our God. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. God has finally heard our cries. You don't think they were crying out? They were. But now we've got someone God is called to lead the project and to help us do it. So they began the good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, these guys again heard, uh, they mocked and ridiculed us. This is interesting because as you start to make change in your life, as you start to reprioritize even your own discipleship and rebuild a church that really devotes itself to God, you will not only be mocked by those outside the church, you will be mocked by other churches. Does that make sense? They will not like that you're looking so different from them. Because we all want people just to do what we do. It makes us feel comfortable, right? So that we don't feel like we're doing less than somebody else. Oh, that doesn't make me feel good, does it? So we like to keep the status quo. Or am I the only one that enjoys that? Yeah, I didn't think so. Okay. I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. I'm not afraid of the fact that you don't like us. God told us to do this. Take it up with Him. We, His servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. So you don't care anyway. So then, the next principle. We only got two more to go. Is this too many principles? You look so fun. Okay, here we go. Full organized participation. Great leaders strive. You didn't get it all. But they strive for full participation and organize the efforts of the people for maximum efficiency. So he had already figured it out by saying the big picture. And then he invites everybody in. God desires that us in the church, that we would operate as a unified community of servants stewarding our spiritual gifts and original abilities together. Everybody has a role to play in building the kingdom. Do you know what your role is? You need to figure it out. And leaders need to help you figure it out. And we need to get to work rebuilding what the church can be together. Now, we're not going to go erect any physical walls. You guys are renting your walls, which is nice. Okay, that was fun. All right. Nobody liked that. But we're going to build, you know, the spiritual walls. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place. You know, this was holy work. Building as far as the Tower of Hundred, which they dedicated as far as the Tower of Hanael, the men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built the next to them. Isn't this fun to just know all this? No? The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Hemeroth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Mashulam, son of Berechiah, 
the son of Meshezabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Bananah, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa. And by the way, the reason I go all the way up to verse 5 here for you is because in the whole list of this chapter 3, which kind of mentions everybody and what they did, this is the only outlier. But their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work. So he tried to get everybody, but he couldn't get them. They were above that. But they were still there. They just kind of, you know, sat there and had an umbrella up and, you know, sipped their lemonade while everybody else was going to work. And there will be people like that in the church. And that's okay. You just keep building. Okay? And keep building. Finally, principle number seven, and we'll be done. People, knowledge, and recognition. The reason I share all that detail and they did this and this is what they did and that's what they did is because it's important to recognize what God does through everybody. Especially those that don't have the public stuff like I do or Dave does or whatever. Because the church can become very quickly, the kingdom building can be very quickly about Nehemiah and what he was doing. Nehemiah turned the attention on to everybody else. Let me tell you what they did. Let me tell you what they did. Let me tell you what they did. I watched everything. I watched how they do it. I, did the, I, I, I noticed everything. Do you feel noticed in the church? Do you feel like your devotion and your love and what God's doing through you gets appreciated? When it is, it does, it's not the reason we do it. When it is, though, it's like fuel to do more, isn't it? And I'm telling you, we are an appreciation-starved society. And we, we don't recognize that in one another and through one another. It quickly moves into bad motivational patterns for coming and serving God. Right? So that I'll look more righteous or something like that. It's important. Nehemiah headed it right off at the pass. It's significant that God keeps a careful record of all those who serve Him. This is seen in the listing of those who repaired the wall and the gates. I especially like how Nehemiah noted in verse 20 how some zealously repaired the wall. He even notes our attitudes and enthusiasm levels. Nothing escapes God. And even if the people in the church don't recognize it, you're storing up treasures in heaven. Someday, when you stand before a holy God to give an accounting of your life, He will say, well done, good and faithful. And by the way, that season of when you're there with harvest, wow, thanks for letting me serve through you. Thanks for releasing yourself so that I could love people through you. Whether it was appreciated or not, I saw it. And God sees everything. It's an important thing to remember. So here's our last little bit. The Jeshaniah Gate was repaired by Joadiah, son of Pashanah, and Meshulam, son of Besodeah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by the men of Gibeon and Mizpah, Melalacia and Gibeon and Jadon and Maranoth, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates. Isn't this fun for you? Uziel, son of Hariah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. And Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Hey, we're making progress. Rephaiah, son of Hur, ruled the half-district Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jedediah, son of Hamariah, made repairs opposite his house. And Hattush, son of... Everybody's getting paid attention to here. Isn't this great? Let me get down to verse 20. We didn't have verse 20 in here. But basically, he talks about how zealously these people repaired in verse 20. So here's how I want to kind of sum it up. I want to ask you if you are willing to be broken by God to be wrecked by Him. What I'm trying to convince you of is until you're willing to be wrecked, you will not let God reprioritize your life. And you will keep Him in the very comfortable, safe box that He's in in your life. 
until you're really willing to let Him be Lord of all. And whatever He moves you to do, you will do. You will not experience the abundant life. But if you're willing to, let Him reprioritize your relationship with Him. Pray into His promises. Figure out whatever He's promised and pray into it and live that faith. Seek His plan for your life. Proceed with the big picture in mind, letting Him organize the whole thing so you develop fully in your faith with Him. Live as a personal example of commitment in front of your family, in front of your friends, everywhere. Strive for full organized participation here in the church and know people's true gifts and abilities and recognize one another's positive contributions. You create that kind of a community and that kind of a vibe, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. You will build the kingdom here. It will be relational walls. It will be relationships that people see, like Jesus said actually, They will know I'm your Lord. They'll know me when they see the love one for another. At that heightened level, at that amazing dynamic level, they'll know I am Lord. Does that make sense? But that only comes by following these kinds of pathways in our lives. Let me pray for us. Father, it's very comforting to know that You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That if in any way anybody in here is less than fully wrecked for You, fully humble, fully willing and able to be used of You to grow Your kingdom, that You're patient and gracious and You will wait. Some in here might be like the the nobles from Tekoa and just don't really want to put their, their hands to the task. Father, I pray by the power of Your Holy Spirit that wherever any of us are today, You would help us learn from the example of Nehemiah. You'd help us learn how to press into You by faith. To trust You to go before us to provide everything we need. Help us to be about Your kingdom, God. In this short time we have here on earth, glorify Your name through us, we pray. In Christ's name. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.